most of us probably know this already, that uh, just recently the Queen of England had passed. And so in the meantime, we have a new, they have a new, we, some of us are actually English here as well, we, they have a new king uh, in the meantime until he is coronated here uh, sometime next year. But her big day on June 2nd of 1953 was the most watched coronation of royalty ever in human history. And part of that was because of the use and invention of television at the time. Uh, they say somewhere around 27 million people just in the UK watched, 11 million in the United States alone. And so this was the most watched coronation ever. Queen Elizabeth rode in a golden carriage through the streets of London as three million people there physically in London filled the streets to watch and royal guards stood shoulder to shoulder making a human wall between the, the royal party and the people. She made her way into the Westminster Abbey in a golden lined coronation dress with the train, that back part of the dress, being 15 feet long, carried by six maids. This signified and showed the, the, the glory, the magnification of this person that was walking in it. There was a communion service. This time, the people were recognizing that this is a holy moment for our nation. Scriptures were read. Prayers were said for her and with her. And then she was anointed with oil on her head, in her hands, and on her breast in the sign of the cross. Then the moment came when in the center of the room, there were steps that led to this platform and there was a throne. And she ascended those steps. She sat down and the Archbishop of Canterbury crowned her before everyone. He then presented the Queen Elizabeth to the people as the new queen of England and asked all in the room to, ploy, to plead their loyalty. And they responded in multiples of saying, God save the queen, God save the queen. A 21 gun salute was fired off from the Tower of London. And after all that was done, with an imperial crown on her head, the sovereign scepter in one hand and the sovereign orb in the other, she left the building as all sang to her the song also called God Save the Queen. That is a coronation. <laughs> it's a coronation. It was filled with honor and praise and the magnification of the person they were coronating and enthroning. And here we are in chapter 19 of John, and we see how the sovereign God of the universe chose to coronate the Son on earth. He chose the brutal Roman torture device, the cross and a mock coronation for the son, for an earthly coronation and enthronement ceremony here. At this point in John chapter 19, Pontius Pilate has already been talking with Jesus and interrogating him, and he came to the conclusion that this man is innocent. That this is a sham. Why, why am I being part of this? As the person ruling and subjugating over his people, it's kind of like, why am I wasting my time in this sham trial? And so he says to himself, he kind of decides, look, Maybe if I just brutally mess Jesus up in front of these people, they'll kind of say, they were bloodthirsty. Ah, just, okay, have mercy on him. We're done. That was enough. And so he has him flogged. He has him mocked, humiliated in front of the people. They 
twist a, a, a crown. It says in chapter 1 that he took Jesus, had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And you can imagine them digging in down towards his eyes. His face was mutilated. They clothed him in a purple robe, the color of royalty. And the soldiers went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they struck him on the face. Once more, Pilate comes out to the Jews gathered, saying, look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. Chapter, in verse 5, when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. This probably is more like, look at this pathetic man. You would think at this moment the crowds would have looked on him, bloodied, bruised, face mocked, humiliated, and said, okay, that's enough. Pilate does not realize, even at this moment, under the plans of the Father, and John writes, and we shouldn't miss this, that this is a, 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 in a moment of divine irony through this whole coronation process, that Pilate is, in fact, presenting Israel's coronated king. So he says, behold, here he is, the man, your king, the awaited Messiah. And Pilate gives the crowds a choice, right? This is the moment <laughs> to stop with this plan. He's already given them a choice, right? Just in chapter 18, before, he gave them the opportunity to choose Barabbas, a violent revolutionary, or Jesus, this man who they, he has found no guilt in him. And of course, they chose violence. They chose violence. They chose to corroborate even with this man, Pontius Pilate, who has already attempted to put idols in the temple of Jerusalem. And this act caused people to riot and go against him, uh, riots that he had to squash out with violence himself. So Pontius Pilate himself has been a violent man. And they chose Barabbas and Pontius Pilate over Jesus. And here we are 2,000 years later, and not much has changed, right? It doesn't take long when you watch the news to see how we constantly still choose violence. And we choose often darkness and, and evil. We fight for things like to save trees and yet the right to kill our own unborn children. We choose violence. And, and, and left to our own devices without the grace of God, we would continue in that. So for this reason, John, at the beginning of his gospel, sets us up and prepares us for what we'll read in chapter 3 when he says, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so despite the beaten and bloodied scene before them, like many of us, <laughs> when we choose violence instead of God, we just tell God, you know what, crucify you. That's what they said. The bloodthirsty crowd tells him, fine. He, he tells them, fine. You want to crucify him? You crucify him, because I don't find any guilt in this man. And then he says, we have a law, and he must die. He has made himself the son of God. And in that moment, Pilate's eyes were open to the real reason they wanted to crucify him. It wasn't the fact that he was claiming to be the Messiah, this king, and so therefore is treason against Rome. It was because he claimed divine origin. And the text tells us in this moment that he became even more afraid. 
Pilate at this moment has been governor over Judea, the southern region of Israel, for four to seven years. And so if you think about this, the entire earthly vocation of Jesus has been with Pilate above him, governing this region. And so it is not unthinkable that he has probably heard the rumors of Jesus at this moment, the miracles, him feeding the multitudes miraculously, him healing people, driving out demons, even possibly at this moment, chapters before that he would have heard of the raising of one of his best friends, Lazarus. On top of that, his own wife, Matthew tells us, comes to Pontius, to Pilate at this moment and says, I had a dream and I've been haunted and tortured by it. And I'll tell you what, have nothing to do with this righteous man, Jesus. So he's rightfully afraid. Who wants the blood of possibly a divinely blessed person on their hands is what he's thinking. So he brings Jesus back one more time into his quarters and he asks him the foundational question of John's gospel. Where are you from, Jesus? And Jesus stays silent. Multiple times during this trial, Jesus has stayed silent to his accusers. And this was, as we know, to fulfill Isaiah 53, this image of the suffering servant that was to come and, and, and represent and bear Israel and the world's sin in their place. And it says this, that the suffering servant would be oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Pilate responds, he's angry. You won't speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you or to crucify you? He's basically saying, you mock me standing here before you. I'm trying to help you, and you mock me. I'm the only one that has power to do this, and I'm the only one here for you to help you. And Jesus, still in control, finishes his speaking with Pilate by saying, look, you would have no authority unless it had been given from you above. Imagine Jesus there, the crown on his head, the royal purple around him, keeping the situation in control, tells him, you have no authority. This isn't your plan to crucify me. This is my father's plan. And so he forces the situation to move forward. The text tells us they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross uh, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. We know this word most often by the Latin, which is Calvary. You see, the crucifixion was so horrible, so horrific, that the Romans would not allow someone to be crucified in the city walls. And so Jesus had to carry his own cross out of the city walls, away from the women and children's eyes to witness this. And he says, John, in verse 18, there they crucified him and with him two others on either side and Jesus between them. So just as Queen Elizabeth had ascended to her throne and sat in royal glory, Jesus is, as he said he would, lifted up. John said in 1232, Jesus says, I, when I, the Son of Man is lifted up, I will then draw all men to me. That language itself it's no wonder that the disciples and the people hearing are confused. This is a phrase that shows magnification, of glorification of someone. Someone being lifted up in honor. And John tells us afterwards, but he was actually referring to the cross. 
His coronation, his enthronement, his honor in this moment that is coming will be the cross. And that will be the act in which God brings the nations to him in praise. So he uses that language. He is lifted up, crowned and anointed by his own blood and surrounded by criminals. And just as the Bishop of Canterbury presented to the people the queen, without knowing it, they present him king to all the earth, where above his cross is the proclamation made in Aramaic, the language for the Jews, all those there in Jerusalem, Latin for the Romans, and Greek for Greek speakers in the trade language. So basically to the entire world, here is your king, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. It's fascinating because John in this passage, when he talks about the crucifixion, it just, it comes and goes. It just says, and there he was crucified among the criminals, right? I don't know if you've, if you've been a believer for a long time, maybe you've heard a sermon where the entirety of the sermon was about the horrors of the cross, right? And all that would go on in it and the whippings and, and what would be in the whip and how Jesus would have carried it and, and all, and, and the nails in the hands and the feet and how he would have to hold himself up and all that. For John... He doesn't focus on that. And we don't know if it's because his disciples already know it. This is most likely the last gospel written. Or if maybe that's just not the point for John. For sure his audience would have known what was involved in it. It was a horrific process. Something that Romans would not even do to Roman citizens. It was only for foreigners and those we subjugated. What he does focus on and what he wants us to see is his desire to know that in Christ, God's Messiah which means his anointed king, the anointed one. He has come and fulfilled the mission of the Father. That when we see Christ on the cross, we don't see someone who lost, but by his own blood conquers. And then he goes on to show us that this was the beginning from the, the plan of the Father from the very beginning. From the beginning pages of the Old Testament, this was God's plan to redeem, to buy back, to win and fix all that is wrong in his creation. And so he starts using language over and over again now, and, and the other gospels do as well. This was done to fulfill the scriptures. And this is John's point here. In Matthew's gospel, he shares just how Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus did this, I believe not because, this is my belief, not because the father actually forsook the son. This was the plan of the father the whole entire time. But so that his audience and those listening would be pointed back that Psalm 22 is now happening in your midst. The psalmist says, and he goes on, he is scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads, saying he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him then. Matthew shares that those who pass by wag their heads at him was Matthew's language, saying exactly that. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you truly are the Son of God, then come down from the cross. The psalmist continues in 22, I am poured out like water, like an offering, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. This is anguish of the suffering person in this psalm. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus is about to enter the dust of death, the realm of the dead. For dogs encompass me, a, couple of, a company of evildoers encircles me. He is surrounded by criminals and evil men at this moment. 
They have pierced. This is David writing in Psalm 22. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This is a crucifixion. I can count all of my bones. They will moments pierce his side and not break his legs because they find him already dead. All his bones are intact. They stare and gloat over me. Verse 18 of 22. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And this is the next thing that happens after Jesus is crucified in John, is that they take his tunic, which was all one piece, so a valuable item in that time, and they start basically playing a game of dice to see who gets to keep it. This is a game to them. This is fun. They gain something from this. And Jesus, in verse 28, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, the branch that was used to paint the Passover lamb's blood on the doorpost so that the wrath of God would pass over that house and spare them, that they would have peace with God as he passed by. Shalom with him. And they take this and hold it to his mouth. Again, in Psalm 22, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. This is a broken pottery that was showing the deep dehydration of the suffering person at the time. My tongue sticks to my jaws because I'm so thirsty. Psalm 69, 21 also says, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And so with this, he bows his head and he says, it is finished, and he gives up his spirit. What I believe is the, mo- the most amazing part of this Psalm in 22 is not simply for the portraying of what is happening to this suffering servant. It's the fact that he goes on and continues to say what will happen because of the suffering servant. The psalmist says, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. And he will, in just three days, vindicate and fix what has been done. I will declare, this is still in Psalm 22, I will declare your name to my people. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. So he goes on to say that not only the Jew, but all the nations, the Gentiles, will come into worship of Israel's king because of the suffering of this servant. That he himself will be declared, he will declare, and he himself will be declared to bring the nations to him. This is the promise that was given back in Genesis to Abraham, that you yourself will be a nation, but you will be a blessing to all the nations. It's fascinating. This is David writing this. The first, you could say, little Messiah, the anointed king, portraying his suffering in a sense, but prophesying, maybe without knowing it, we don't know, of the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate anointed king that would come. He goes on, this is the end of the psalm. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship, and all who go down to the dust, all those who die, 
All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who could not keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, his justice, declaring to a people yet unborn, that's us, declaring what? He has done it. God will receive not simply the nations, but will rule even those who have passed through death's door. And we know that for the Jews and the Romans, this earthly crucifix, crucifixion was a mock coronation and enthronement. This was a joke to them. And yet in 43 days, three days to rise, 40 on earth, Jesus will ascend to the right hand of the Father and sit down in glory and once again say, now it is finished. He will rule the nations with his scepter in glory to the pleasure and the pride of the Father and the hope of glory and eternal life of all those who truly make him king. The author of Revelation gives us a glimpse of this as he was taken in a vision to see this glorious throne room worship of Jesus. It says in Revelation 5.11, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures, these heavenly celestial creatures that are worshiping Jesus, and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and of thousands. And what are they saying? With a loud voice, they're crying out, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And this is the hope for all of us and those who do not mock Jesus, but make him king, who would coronate in their lives and in their hearts and pledge loyalty and faithfulness to Jesus as king, that we would be numbered among this myriad of people. Right? My hope, my hope is that I would see that John saw my face, my children's faces, your faces, there among this myriad of people crying these words out. And our hope as well is the hope that of what Jesus receives in chapter 20, what we'll see next week, which is vindication and resurrection. If this is not yet your hope, I would invite you to talk to one of the leaders, one of the pastors, someone with one of those callers, or someone during the time where we take Eucharist in the back to go to the back and get prayer to say, I am ready to place my hope in this Jesus that was crucified so that I could receive the resurrection he received. And for those of us who do hope in this, let's pray. Father, it is a marvel that you chose to leave your heavenly throne room in which the heavens, the angels, celestial creatures proclaimed your glory and you needed nothing, yet you chose this enthronement on earth to draw us back to you. And for that, we give you praise, we give you honor, give you our lives. May you work the work of the cross and the resurrection in our lives that we would be a gospel-shaped people. 
that you would truly be king of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.